Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, December 19th, 2022. We're rolling along in our series on preterm birth. Today, Jen Lam Racklin joins me to talk about indicated preterm birth, which is a birth that is less than 37 weeks, but not due to preterm labor or ruptured membranes. It's when one of us doctors makes a decision that it's safer for the mother or baby to be born early rather than continue the pregnancy. Jen and I are going to discuss how we come to that decision and some common situations when that might occur. Next week, we're going to start a series of four podcasts on the topic of peri-viable birth, which is a preterm birth that occurs just at the cusp of when a newborn might survive. This is one of the most difficult clinical situations in all of pregnancy for the parents, for the baby, for the doctors. So we're going to try to spend some time on it. Two of the podcasts are going to be with doctors, and two of the podcasts are going to be stories from parents from a high-risk birth story series. Next week, we start with Dr. Jessica Spiegelman, who's an MFM like me and was on this podcast a few weeks ago. All right, a reminder for all of you listening on Spotify or on Apple, it would be great if you could go on and rate us, preferably with five stars. We would appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. See you next Monday. And for all of you celebrating, have a wonderful Christmas. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Jennifer Lamracklin. Jen, welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? Doing great. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for asking. We did see each other last night. We had a lovely yeah. dinner, which was great with us and a bunch of doctors, which is has the potential to be exceedingly boring. But this was actually a lot of fun. Interesting people. We had a great time. We, we talk about non-medicine stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it appears that all of us, except for you, like to talk about our dogs. So yeah, that was the one thing I noticed. I get you get you get to the point in life where you stop talking about your children and you talk about your dogs. I don't know what that makes us, but whatever. <laughs> it's all good. But you're still talking about your children, so I appreciate that. Good work. I, I, I still have to make sure they're alive. So <laughs> I still have to talk about them. <laughs> and as I learned last night, your children are probably all just at the at the gym right now for the whole day for free babysitting. Yeah. <laughs> Jen's got a secret. If anyone, you can all email me <laughs> offline. I'll tell you a secret for having free babysitting for your kids at the local gym. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I digress. So we're going to be talking today. Uh, you know, we're doing a whole series on preterm birth. And, you know, a lot of people correctly think of preterm birth as preterm labor and ruptured membranes and that whole pathway and process and treatment and prevention and screening. And, you know, there's a lot in prenatal care and obstetrics related to that. But there's a whole sort of other wing in the preterm birth unit, which is called indicated preterm birth. And it doesn't get as much attention or discussion. And I thought it'd be good for us to talk about that specifically to help our listeners understand, you know, what we're talking about and why it might be different in terms of all those same things, screening, treatment, prevention, and whatnot. I agree. I think a lot of focus on patients, like, you know, worry about, you know, whether they're going to go into spontaneous preterm labor, we kind of forget a little bit about other reasons that people deliver early that is not because 
they went into labor, but there was something going on with the pregnancy that puts either mom or the baby at risk where we have to deliver them early. And, and it's a very important part, I think, of, of preterm deliveries and, and how to prevent that. Yeah, I mean, preterm birth, as you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast and going through this mini series knows, is you know, delivery less than 37 weeks. And there definitely comes multiple times when we have to recommend someone get delivered under 37 weeks. Whether that means we induce the labor or do C-section is not really relevant to the discussion today, you know, how we deliver. But when we deliver, we say, listen, you know, you have to go get delivered preterm. And people are like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And so I think we should, you know, first of all, differentiate. That's what we're saying. You know, this is a concept where someone delivers early, not because they went into labor, not because their body sort of put them into labor, but because they're sitting in a doctor's office and one of us says, you need to get delivered either today and your preterm, or we need to plan to deliver you preterm. Again, there's different situations which require each of them. And that's what we mean by indicated preterm birth, and it's indicated you need to be delivered, at least for safety purposes, whether for the mother or baby, and we'll get into that. And, you know, I always found is interesting, there is some overlap between indicated and spontaneous preterm birth. People, you know, now that we've sort of mentioned what they are, the difference between them, and we're separating them, there is actually a lot of interplay between those two. I agree. It's not unusual when we, we see a patient for their subsequent pregnancy if they had a, a, a spontaneous, spontaneous preterm delivery and then they say, oh, but the baby was also very small or my blood pressure was very high. And it's hard to say that they're all kind of isolated out of each other and that they're not interrelated. And in those scenarios, I, I usually tell patients that, you know, sometimes the pregnancies are much smarter than we are. You know, if we don't know to bail out, then they'll just go into labor because <laughs> bail itself out, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. Those are the scenarios. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of this is related to, you know, with the placenta, for example. So if the placenta is not working great, it can manifest as the baby being too small or maybe a blood pressure going up. And those might get to be profound enough that we say, all right, you need to deliver. But it also may just cause her body to say, all right, you know, enough is enough going into labor. And in future pregnancies, one of the really fascinating like sort of data that we've seen over the years is everybody knows that if you have a history of a spontaneous preterm birth in the next pregnancy, you have an increased risk of a spontaneous preterm birth. But you also have an increased risk of an indicated preterm birth. And, and the reverse is true. If you had an indicated preterm birth, you have an increased risk of a spontaneous preterm birth. And it's it sort of doesn't make a ton of sense on the surface. But when you really get deep into all the reasons for preterm birth and all the complex pathways, it does make sense that this whole process of when a pregnancy is quote unquote supposed to end, it makes sense that they'd be related to each other. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's more and more evidence that there is some at least some overlap, right? Uh, and I wouldn't say every single spontaneous preterm labor, there's an overlap with, with some of these placental-related issues, but there's multifactorial etiologies for why people go into labor early. And and one of them could be these underlying maybe placental or some other factor that have such a big overlap with these medical indications for preterm delivery too. Right. And we're going to go into specific diagnoses or specific reasons why we might recommend a preterm birth, you know, an indicated preterm birth, but just from a, a general level, like an overarching level, what is the concept? Like, why would we recommend someone get delivered, you know, a month early, five weeks early, whatever it is in the preterm period? Like, what would make us do that? You know, it's, it's 
always the continuation of pregnancy versus delivery is a balance of a variety of risks, right? Like the, there's the risk of delivery and prematurity and then off balance by the risk to either the baby or the mom. So generally when we recommend an early delivery or preterm delivery as an indicator preterm delivery, it's either because to continue the pregnancy is either too risky for the mom or too risky for the baby or too risky for both. And, and that's off balance by, by the minor risk maybe at that time of, of prematurity. When we're sort of training the medical students and residents, and one of the things I remember when I was trained is at almost every prenatal visit, either consciously or subconsciously, we're thinking, is it better to continue the pregnancy, you know, another week, another two weeks, another month, or to deliver? Now, obviously, very early in pregnancy, that's not really a decision. But as you get sort of at or past the due date, that's always something we're thinking. But if there are certain conditions going on, it becomes quite relevant. And when you think about continuing a pregnancy, right, from 34 weeks to 35 weeks to 36 weeks, the biggest benefit of getting more pregnant would be for the baby, right? Because the later the baby is born up to a certain point, there's, you know, decreased risk of going to the NICU, decreased risk of complications, decreased risk of long-term complications for prematurity. Yeah, so there's a benefit. But there's always some level of risk of continuing pregnancy. There's that sort of minuscule risk of stillbirth at baseline to the baby. There's always this sort of small risk of some, you know, upcoming health problem related to pregnancy for the mother. And generally, in a typical healthy pregnancy, those risks, those minuscule risks are outweighed by the benefit to the baby to stay pregnant. But when certain conditions come up or certain situations come up, those risks go up, whether it's a risk to the mother or risk to the baby. And now we're like, all right, we have to really start to like get the scales out and decide is <laughs> this benefit, you know, this extra week, is that benefit really worth it compared to the risk? And obviously it depends on how much benefit, how much risk. So the earlier you are in pregnancy, there's going to be much more benefit to the baby staying pregnant versus later in pregnancy. And the condition will dictate how much risk there is to the mother baby. So it's a really sort of complex calculation we always have to do when these conditions come up. Yeah, I agree. I think like subconsciously or consciously, that is always the the, the balance that we're doing. And, you know, so as obstetricians and men, when we see a patient, I was telling them, you know, we'll see you next week or let's go to the hospital with the baby. <laughs> the the, the risk that we balance, right? And, and there are certain things that do occur that, that that kind of tips the scale one way or the other, right? And that's when we do these indicated preterm deliveries. Right. So let's let's start talking about them. And again, we're for each of these, we're not gonna cover the topic, you know, thoroughly or exhaustively because each one of these could be its own podcast or its own series, but just to sort of get a flavor of what are the conditions or the situations in pregnancy where we might start recommending preterm and early delivery. So the first one I wanted to talk about is preeclampsia. So on a very general level, like what is preeclampsia and why might we deliver early because of it? The most general way of describing preeclampsia would be that it is a maternal manifestation of probably an inherent placental problem. And, and the usual presentation would be like a sudden spike in the mom's blood pressure usually happening in the third trimester and, and the more severe forms can put her at risk of strokes, seizures, and then end organ damage like heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure. And the only treatment once someone gets preeclampsia is really 
to make them not pregnant anymore. So to deliver the baby and the placenta and allow the body to slowly recover. Typically, thankfully, this happens in the late third trimester and typically it's mild. So it's not a hard decision to make, but in, in rare cases, it can occur very early. And in those cases, it becomes a, a little harder decision because basically we're going to deliver this baby prematurely for the benefit of the mom's health. Yeah, I mean, preeclampsia, like you said, most of the time is mild enough that either it doesn't manifest until she's full term, until she's 37 plus weeks, in which case we do recommend delivery for preeclampsia, but it's a full term birth. Or if it happens before 37 weeks, it's usually mild enough that we we sort of believe the risk is low enough to the mother that we can wait to let this baby develop a little bit further and get to 37 weeks. So for most people with preeclampsia, if it's mild, we're going to wait till around 37 plus weeks till full term to deliver. But as you said, if the condition is more severe and how we determine it's severe is sort of based on how bad the blood pressure is or blood tests or other things going on, the risk to the mother starts going up and up. And this is also a situation where the risk to the baby probably goes up as well. This is one of the situations where generally, if the mother's sick enough that she needs to be delivered preterm, it's probably better for the baby also. It's rarely mother versus baby in, in this diagnosis. Correct. And how early might someone need to get delivered for severe preeclampsia? could be as early as 24 weeks. In very rare cases, it can even present prior to 24 weeks. But those are extraordinarily rare. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one that can be really, really early if the mother is very, very sick. But again, fortunately, that is unusual. And usually either they get two 37 weeks if it's mild or sort of close to 37 weeks. Like generally, if they're severe but sort of stable, we can push it off to maybe 34 weeks. But occasionally it has to be earlier. So if someone's sort of dealing with the diagnosis of preeclampsia very early in the third trimester, even in the second trimester, that's a lot riskier because there's a higher chance I'll end up needing it delivered early or very early. Whereas if it sort of manifests later in pregnancy, you've already passed that point, fortunately. All right. How about fetal growth restriction or sometimes called intrauterine growth restriction, IGR or FGR? What's going on there and why might we recommend early delivery? Again, it is I guess the best way to describe it is a fetal manifestation of a placental problem, right? So, you know, it most likely is a result of something going on that's not healthy in variety parts of the placenta where the baby's not growing to his or her growth potential. And they are much smaller than, than what they're supposed to be. And in some cases of fetal growth restriction, we might have to deliver prior to 37 weeks because there's you know, on top of the baby being small, there's already signs of significant placental failure, where if we don't deliver the baby, there's a high, much higher risk of stillbirth and something abruptly occurring in that waiting time period. Yeah, I think people find it somewhat counterintuitive at first. Why, if the baby's not growing well, would you deliver early? They're like, well, wouldn't you want to wait as long as possible to let the baby sort of eke out every ounce that he or she can, you know, in growth? And I would say the answer to that is yes, if we knew the baby were going to make it another week. And so generally, you know, generally for fetal growth restriction, like preeclampsia, we do wait till the baby's full term, till 37 weeks, 38 weeks, whatever it is, because it's usually mild enough that we're not that worried about the risk of stillbirth. But if there are certain findings on ultrasound, for example, that are really concerning, we're like, listen, you know, your baby might not make it another week. And in that situation, the higher that chance 
goes, the more likely we are to deliver early. And so we try to get as far as possible, but sometimes it just looks too dangerous and we need to deliver the baby at whatever gestational age to quote unquote save the baby from stillbirth, essentially. Correct. Yeah, that's that's a hard one when it's very early because, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of a lot of moms are okay, maybe pushing, you know, pushing the limit a little bit on their own health and their own blood pressure. I mean, I'm not saying it's a great idea to do that, but they're sort of conceptually going to, you know, fight to stay pregnant a little bit longer. But when we're telling them, you know, staying longer might help your baby, but you may have a stillbirth. That's a really hard situation to be in. And we do have criteria that we use that are pretty predictive of they're not being a stillbirth over the next week or the next half week. And so we generally will hang our hat on those and say, all right, you know, these tests, you know, like the, the Doppler studies, the fluid, the movement, we'll say these studies are good enough that we're comfortable waiting a week or a half week. But every time you come, like those tests might change. We might need to recommend delivery and it could be quite preterm. That is a tough situation to be in. Sort of like preeclampsia, if you're dealing with this earlier, the more likely it's going to be a significant problem as you get towards the end of the third trimester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that that is probably one of the more common scenarios where we're sending patients over for delivery day of a scan, right? Like either abnormal Dopplers or low fluid or bad physical profiles and setting of growth restriction. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's still not, you know, the majority of pregnancies, but, but, but yes, well, one of the more common reasons for, for indicated preterm delivery. Right. Now, what about placental abruption or a suspected abruption? What's going on there? So again, the placental problem, but, but more specifically, it is parts of the placenta is actually shearing off or, or being non-curant to, to the uterine wall. And, and that could generally present as, as some form of abdominal pain and bleeding. Obviously, that's a, a scary scenario when you talk about like parts of the placenta is actually shearing off the uterine wall. That's like the baby's not only growth, resource, but it's, it's the baby lifeline there. So in the setting of a bad abruption where it's causing either fetal distress or there's just excessive non-gluting that's not stopping, that is another reason for an indicated preterm delivery. Yeah. And the three we just mentioned, the preeclampsia, the fetal growth restriction, and the placental abruption, you correctly, first thing you said is that's a placental problem. And those three are the most interrelated, that if you have one, you might have the other, you might have the third. If you have a history of one, you might have a recurrence of the other or all three. I mean, those three are all really just, you know, sort of different manifestations of the same problem. There's something off with the placenta. And so those three frequently go hand in hand. And again, based on the severity is going to dictate whether the delivery needs to be preterm or not. There's a few more that are sort of a little bit different. One of them is for some unknown reason, we're concerned about the baby's well-being. Like the baby's not growth restricted, the placenta's not separated, her blood pressure's fine, but for whatever reason, the heart rate's you know low, or some you know baby's not moving, or some concern like that. And why in that situation would you recommend an early delivery? So the fetus lattice is not reassuring whether, for instance, if you said like the heart rate doesn't look grave on the monitor or the movements are not great. The concern would be if, whether there is, there's either like a metabolic reason that the baby is not quote unquote happy and, and that may be a, 
the ominous sign for if we continue the pregnancy, then there might be a stillbirth that will occur in the near future or other reasons why maybe the baby is not as happy as, as he or she wants to be. So so to do a preterm delivery in that setting is really just to avoid the possibility of potentially a stillbirth in the near future. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's pretty rare that this happens out of nowhere, that, you know, there's decreased movement and we sort of identify a problem and need to deliver early. I mean, it happens, but it's pretty rare. I think more times this is happening in a setting where we're already worried about the baby, like, you know, a situation where there's some condition that's been identified, whether it's, you know, fetal anemia for some reason or some heart rhythm abnormality or something that's going on with the baby that puts the baby at risk for this. And even though it's not specifically a problem with the placenta, it's conceptually the same thing that we're worried that if continuing pregnancy is going to really lead to a stillbirth or some damage to the baby, we have to deliver earlier. These, again, are fortunately pretty unusual in the typical setting. I mean, even you know, we're a pretty high risk practice and these are even unusual in our practice, fortunately, but they do happen from time to time, but it, and it might be a reason why someone's recommended to deliver early. Yeah. Now, having your water broken, premature rupture of membranes or P-prom because it's preterm is its own podcast, but it's really, it's, that's a really interesting overlap where on the one hand, the process is sort of like spontaneous because their water broke on their own. But on the other hand, they're not like in labor at that in time. Labor. But generally, we do recommend delivery preterm if the water's broken. And what is what is the main reason we would recommend delivery if the water's broken? So there's a few, but the main reason would be the longer she stays pregnant, the higher the chances of intrauterine infection or chorioamnitis. And in, in that setting, you know, to, to already have a preterm baby and then on top of that, potentially having an infection that, that kind of complicates that post-delivery course for the baby. So after the membranes are ruptured, the, the longer you wait, the, the higher the potential of that. And then also there, there could be, you know, a higher rate of stillbirth also, although, you know, still not like the majority of, of P-PROMs, but, but the stillbirth rate is higher than if you weren't ruptured, right? And there could be a cord accident and stuff like that. So so obviously we wait kind of the, the balance on that on the risk scale. It's not the moment that you break your water, you get delivered. It depends on the gestational age and all the factors surrounding it. Yeah. And there's and there is there is a lot of discussion and controversy over what is the best time to deliver in this circumstance. But it's definitely one of the reasons why someone might recommend delivery early. I mean, we generally recommend delivery after 34 weeks. Sometimes you'll stretch it to 35 or, you know, maybe a little bit longer. Sometimes very unusual. People are stretching it, but I don't know if anyone's stretching it past 37 weeks around the country. I don't know if I've seen anyone do that for, for ruptured membranes. Yeah. yeah, definitely not past 37 weeks. I think in very rare case-by-case scenarios, we may, may consider waiting. Like, for instance, if we know the baby maybe has a heart defect, will potentially need heart surgery. The, the bigger the baby is, the more successful the surgery. So even if the membranes are ruptured, we know that there might be a chance of infection by waiting, but there might be some benefit of just allowing a few more weeks so that the baby's growing bigger so that the surgery is more successful. So those are kind of those rare scenarios where, where we have to factor in timing of delivery and what's the best time. Yeah, another diagnosis that sometimes leads to an indicated preterm birth is cholestasis. Again, we had a separate podcast on cholestasis and 
-hmm. when exactly to deliver for that is also an area of controversy. But sort of the early end of the typical recommendation is around 36 weeks. So that's technically preterm because it's a week before 37 weeks. It's not generally earlier than that unless there's really something unusual. But that is possibly a situation where someone might be advised to deliver before 37 weeks with cholestasis. Yeah. And then what about situations where we might deliver someone before 37 weeks simply because we don't want them going into labor for what for like surgical reasons or something like that. So what what might some of those conditions be? Typically it's either because they there's they've had surgery on their uterus and and we don't want them to labor against that prior scar and have the uterus open up and that's called a uterine rupture. So for instance, if someone's had like a surgery for their fibroids or or they've had a prior like classical C-section in the past, then, then those are the patients that we don't want to labor and, and consider an earlier delivery just to avoid the possibility of labor. And then the other reasons are typically related to like placenta location. So like if the placenta is covering the opening of the cervix or that's called placenta previa, or there's a blood vessel that's covering the opening cervix and that's called the previa, then the risk of going into labor and significant bleeding from the fetal side is high, then those are the patients we don't also want to go into labor and deliver early. And these are case by case and exactly who gets delivered when, but people are, again, often surprised when they're meeting with us and they have a placenta previa or they have a prior you know, classical uterine incision, we see them for their first visit and we say, hey, we're going to, you know, schedule your delivery for 36 weeks and like, wait, a month early, like you're delivering the preterm baby. And we're like, yeah, you know, there is some risk to the baby, obviously. And we prefer to wait as long as possible. But if you go into labor, it could be like life and death for you and the baby. And so it's just not worth that risk. And so generally, you know, once we explain it, they understand it, but that is the balance and why we might deliver early in that situation, even though it's these are low percentile chances. It's not likely to happen since the, you know, it's such a dramatic outcome. We really do pretty much anything possible to avoid it. Yeah, correct. It's it's rare, but you don't want to be that one case that that happens. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you see one of the conditions we did not mention, and I know you take care of a lot of them, are diabetics and gestational diabetics. And so uh, I'm curious, why don't diabetics usually get delivered early? I mean, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, I look at diabetes as, as something that's very treatable in pregnancy. So for the most part, most patients are going to be, quote unquote, well-controlled. So if you're well-controlled, then the overall risk is quite low in pregnancy. But there's also, you know, in the past, we think of like lung, fetal lung maturity and patients with poorly controlled diabetes, maybe perhaps the, the baby's lungs are not as mature as they should be at a certain gestational age. So if you wind up delivering them early, they might act more immature than, than their actual gestational age. So, so there's a variety of reasons why we don't necessarily deliver them early unless unless they are very poorly controlled despite, you know, increases medication. And in those cases, that, that again, you know, weighing the risk of stillbirth and, and, and delivery, then we might err on the side of delivery. But it's very rare to deliver somebody in the preterm period because of that. Yeah, I think that's another thing that surprises people because in the non-pregnant sort of world, people think diabetes, hypertension, diabetes, hypertension. They like go hand in hand and, you know, similar risks and similar outcomes and, you know, all this stuff goes together. But in pregnancy, they're really very different. I mean, hypertension is something that typically, you know, we can treat the blood pressure, but we can't 
treat preeclampsia. It's only delivery. And so that tends to get worse and worse. Whereas diabetes, as you said, we tend to have the ability to intervene. And so it's not really acutely dangerous to the mother or baby. And I would say it's very unusual to deliver someone just because of uncontrolled or poorly controlled diabetes before 37 weeks. I guess it has happened, but very, very rare, very rare. Uh, as compared mm -hmm. to hypertension, preeclampsia specifically. There are some other medical conditions that are a little bit you know, more uh, unusual or rare and that we would mm -hmm. deliver early. But most of the time it's because they're leading to things like hypertension or growth restriction or abruption, or we have concerns to the baby. I guess they're occasionally from time to time, there is reasons if, you know, really significant situations, like if someone, you know, unfortunately gets diagnosed with cancer during pregnancy or something really, you know, sort of out of left field that they may have to get delivered early. But fortunately, those situations are, are pretty rare, I would say. I agree. The they, the conditions such as like cancer is one of the scenarios. I also like, you know, something that comes to mind, like heart failure. If, if the mom just either has an underlying heart issue or a, a new onset heart failure that occurs, then, then those are potential reasons that we deliver them early. They're, they're really the toughest Right. So, I mean, there, we mentioned a lot of conditions and obviously you know, someone is not going to know if they're going to develop any of these things in pregnancy. But are there any sort of preventative measures people can take to avoid getting in a situation where they have an indicated preterm birth? I mean, a lot of the conditions are, I think, vast majority is kind of lumped into like placental problems, right? Like a bad placenta. So, so the preventative measures will be to try to help improve the overall placental health, which really could be two points. One would be like if someone has underlying chronic medical condition like diabetes, pre-gestational diabetes, or hypertension, you want to get that really ideally well-controlled prior to conception and then controlling that during the pregnancy, that's going to help ensure a more you know, healthier, happy pregnancy. And then the other way, let's say someone that doesn't have an underlying medical condition, if they just have risk factors for these placental, quote-unquote placental issues, then the only kind of medication that we have is to start someone on a low-dose aspirin daily, starting around like 10 weeks of pregnancy and so they deliver. And that's really the only preventive measure. Otherwise, there's really nothing else other than monitoring. Yeah. I mean, the low-dose aspirin or the baby aspirin, as a lot of times we call it, is really mostly been shown to lower the risk of severe early onset preeclampsia specifically. But there might be some benefit for some of the other placental issues. That it's sort of hard to tease out in these studies. But that's something that's, you know, different people recommend in different ways. We pretty much recommend it uniformly now, but there's also, you know, ways to do it just based on risk factors. But certainly if you have a history of one of these things, it seems to be helpful in the following pregnancy. And so that's something, you know, in terms of recurrent indicated preterm birth. Wow. Jen, great topic. <laughs> covered a lot today, covered a lot of situations, but but this does happen. I mean, this is really something that obstetricians, particularly, you know, high risk, we we think about all the time on a given yeah. day and with certain patients, you know, if the pregnancy is going great and smooth, it's not going to be much. But a lot of these conditions come up and it is uh, a balance for us of, you know, either recommending to stay pregnant another whatever week, half week, whatever it might be versus saying, hey, you know, I think that this is the time. And it's a, it's a complicated 
calculus. And this is, I think, a really nice overview of sort of who might be in that situation and, and how we come to those decisions. Yeah, but it's a great, great topic to, to cover. Obviously, there each one of those reasons can warrant its own podcast too. But, <laughs> but definitely, you know, it is probably the tougher scenarios for us, right? Like when, you know, we know that we're delivering a child prematurely and, and the sequelae from that and, and really wanting to make sure that we're making the right, the, the right call at the right time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the art of what we do. Yeah. Someone shows up in, you know, in advanced labor at 34 weeks. What are we going to do? Right. I mean, it is what it is. And so <laughs> like, OK, but if we have to make a decision to deliver 34 weeks, that's obviously that's very weighty on us mm -hmm. to make sure we're making the right decision, as you said. Jen, thanks for talking this through with me. I appreciate it. Always good to have you on the Thank podcast. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.